congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You might recall a few weeks ago as we began the series, and I brought it up one time after that, I think, but but this, this question that I want us to keep thinking about, this question that I think is really central to John's gospel, and I want to revisit that question again in, in this introduction tonight, that, that question of who uh, is Jesus? That is really John, the author, that is the question he wants to answer for us. Who is this historical figure named Jesus? You know, who is he in history? What is the significance of him in history? And really, it's not just John in his prologue. He really is laying down some foundational truths about who Jesus is. But as we now make our way into the, the gospel narrative, the gospel account, it in many ways, it really is a summary. It is continuing to ask that question, who is Jesus? And I mean, so far, we've been told he's the word of God, that he is God himself, that he is the, the light of men. He's the, you know, the word made flesh. Uh, but now what we're going to see, what we have already seen in this introduction of John the Baptist, is really uh, a series of testimonies, a series of, of additional statements that people now are making, testifying to who Jesus is. And that word is important, that word testimony or testifying. It's a word that we see repeated throughout John's gospel. And you, know, you can imagine, really, a, if you want to imagine a, a courtroom scene, that this is what we have. John is really calling a bunch of witnesses to the stand, and each of these witnesses gives their own account to who Jesus is, what they have seen of him, what they know to be true. And so this evening we have John the Baptist now, this very important historical figure. He is now adding his testimony to the list of witnesses who claim certain things about Jesus. And so now we want to consider what is it that, what is it that John the Baptist has to say about this Jesus? And As we hear John's testimony, he lists many things that Jesus is, that he is coming to do. But what I essentially want us to see, the way John is really interpreting who Jesus is for us as we consider this text this evening, is he is testifying to the fact that Jesus is a real historical person. He tells us certain things, but centrally he is testifying to Jesus as the fulfillment of the the promises of the Old Testament. That is John's job, you could say, is to testify that Jesus has come to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament. And we see this in a series of interactions that he has. But the first thing we want to see, the first testimony that John the Baptist makes is that Jesus, of the many promises that Jesus answers or, or comes to fulfill, he is the promised Messiah, the, the promised one who is to come. And we see this as John, as this text begins, John is first, before he says who Jesus is, the first thing he has to explain or tell people is who he is not, who John himself isn't, what, you know, what role he is not claiming for himself. We see these religious leaders, they're you know, hearing rumbles of this, you know, this massive uh, movement, this baptism movement out by the Jordan River. And so they're coming to kind of see what the deal is, to, you know, to br- bring a report back to the Pharisees back in Jerusalem. What's going on out here? in the desert. You know, this is kind of a, perhaps has some sort of, you know, like a festival vibe. Maybe you can imagine driving through Coachella Valley during one of the festival weekends. There's this huge crowd out in the middle of nowhere because there's this uh, exciting event that's happening. And so the religious leaders come, they're asking John, what are you doing out here? Why is everyone coming out to you? And we see there's a series of questions they ask him as he's baptizing. They first say, you know, okay, are you the Christ? He says, no, I'm not the Christ. They Say, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. And then they say, are you the prophet? Not just a prophet, but are you the prophet? You see, actually, in each of his responses, there's a shortness. He gets shorter each time. It seems there's actually maybe a little bit of annoyance. No, 
I'm not, no, I'm not. And then finally, one word, just no. Stop asking. You're kind of you know, barking up the wrong tree here. And yet they're not just throwing names out at random. They're not just guessing at who he is. These, these names that they list, these questions they're asking are really showing their expectation. It's showing that there is a particular thing that they are looking for, that they think John might be the answer to. You see them asking, are you the Christ? Which, of course, is a Greek translation. They would have asked if he was the Messiah, the, the anointed one. Are you the one who was promised in the Old Testament, this son of David who was to come at the end of time? John says, no. They say, okay, are you Elijah? Of course, Elijah had died uh, or he had been taken away, but people knew that one day he would return. He would come back, and especially the expectation was he would come back right before the day of the Lord. And so they're saying, okay, are you the, the you know, Elijah coming back who was taken to heaven? Or uh, are you the prophet? They finally say this would have gone all the way back to Moses' account, this promise or this prophecy that Moses had given back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, Moses says that one day a prophet like me will arise from among your brothers. This promise all the way through the Old Testament that this final definitive prophet would come onto the scene. And so there's you know, a lot of questions about the ordering. There's questions about, you know, are these people different people? Are they the same? But nonetheless, they're asking, are you one of these end times figures who we have been waiting for? You know, again, who, or in short, who are you? What gives you the right to do what you're doing to, to, to draw all these people to yourself. And John, as they're drawing from Scripture, asking their questions, John answers with Scripture to tell him what his job is. We see an answer to his questions. He quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So we see John is claiming this, uh, you know, some sort of role for himself. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of something, and in particular, this prophecy from Isaiah 40, that just before the end times, that this one would come, this final prophet, this final, you know, spokesperson for the Lord. And so, you know, essentially, John's saying, you know, I'm not the one. I know you're waiting for the one, but I'm the one pointing to the one. I'm the penultimate person. I'm the one just before this one you're waiting for is coming. And, you know, in short, what he's saying is, in one sense, yes, you are correct. Your, your assumptions are true. The end times have come upon us. These are the, the last days. And I, being here, it's a, it's a sign of that. It's an indication that that is true. And yet he wants to make sure that they know it's not me that you're waiting for. But I, actually, my job is to point everyone to this coming one, this one who is the prophet, this one who is... The Messiah, but of course we see John is now, as he says, who who he had not, uh, who he is not. He now says who this one is, this one that they were waiting for. He does this with that quote that he just gave, that reference to the prophet Isaiah. This, you know, declaration: make straight or prepare the the way of the Lord. Get ready, because not only is the Messiah coming, not only is the prophet coming, but of course the ultimate expectation is. That the Lord is coming. John is saying that the Lord himself is about to come onto the scene. And this was what you know, the very last words of the Old Testament had promised at the very end of Malachi's prophecy, echoing even in that, the, the words of Isaiah, you know, that the, the Lord himself, that the day of the Lord would come and the Lord would come to his people. So this is really what is behind that question. They ask him, why are you baptizing? But this is really all that's behind that. You know, what right do you have to 
do this ministry that is marking the end of history. And in asking this, they were kind of asking, you know, uh, you know, why do you have this special privilege? What, is, well, what makes you so special that you get to be this forerunner? If you're not the Messiah, why do you get to have this special office of, you know, his harbinger? And note what John responds with. He, he doesn't, you know, puff himself up and talk about how great he is and how he deserves this special role. But we actually see in John's response this very, very humble Man who is called to do this job. We see him talking about this one who is so great, who is so above him, who is so magnificent that John says, you know, frankly, I, I'm not even allowed to, uh, or I shouldn't be allowed to take his sandals off of his feet. And this isn't just John's, you know, false humility coming through. He truly is expressing just how much of an honor it is, just how uh, incredible it is in regards to this person who is coming that, you know, in this time, what he's saying is, you know, there were slaves and slaves' jobs. One of their jobs was to take the shoes off of people as they entered a house and then to wash their feet. John is saying here, you know, no uncertain terms, I don't even deserve to be a slave in this person's house. I don't even deserve to have the lowest status. So by showing how low he is, he's magnifying whoever this person is. And of course, with his reference to Isaiah 40, he's declaring, you know, it's not just a person who's coming. It's not just this end times figure, but he is saying, yes, the Lord himself, the God of the universe, the, the God of the Old Testament, he is the one who is coming, which isn't you know, news to us. If we've been reading John's gospel, John, the author has already said that, you know, the word, the, the preexistent one, the, the logos, that he took on flesh, that he dwelt among us. And now John the Baptist is affirming, he's, he's confirming that testimony. The Lord is coming. The Lord is stepping into history. He is going to visit us. He's going to reveal himself to us. You know, God is coming. And it's kind of, I think, hard for us in, in some ways to really understand the, the weight of what the people were hoping for, the, the weight of what they were expecting. You, know, you, you can imagine 400 years since that last word of the prophet Malachi I mean, our country hasn't even been around for you know, 300 years. Imagine waiting 400 years for God to say something, to reveal something. In that time, they were oppressed by the Greeks. They were oppressed by the Romans. They were waiting. They were longing for this, you know, this redemption, this freedom from this very evident bondage that they were under, this oppression of Roman rule. And there's this, this building excitement. You know, people are going out to the wilderness. They're willing to travel miles and miles to see this man saying that the end times have come. And, you know, of course, with that, there's this expectant judgment, hoping that God would come in judgment and injustice on the enemies of his people. And that's really not our paradigm often as we think about salvation. You know, typically our paradigm is that of personal salvation, that each of us individually were, you know, looking to be saved, to be forgiven of our sins, to go to heaven, which of course is wonderful. It's part of the hope that we do have. But these people, people's uh, conception of that salvation was a bit broader than we typically think, that their you know, paradigm of salvation was this you know, earth-wide, this global redemption, God coming and redeeming his people, setting up the, the new heavens and the, the new earth. And yet as we you know, kind of feel, or we don't often feel the tension of that in our own life, I think we in one way can certainly feel that, we, we, or we do feel that rather, that we certainly too, just like these people, we are very, in a very real way, hoping for that same redemption. I mean, this is, you know, 
part of the thing that we feel every time we you know, turn on the news, we see just warfare around us, we see you know, injustice, we see things that aren't right in the world, conflict, we look at our own lives and things just don't feel right. You know, this, uh, you know, this weight of the world, the heaviness of the fact that things aren't the way that they should be. We, you know, in some ways, as we feel those things, we feel what the people of God were feeling just before Jesus came. You know, this hope that things would be made right, that things, not just in their own lives, but in history and the world would be turned around. This, you know, uh, hopeful expectation, this looking forward to the turning of the tides, or uh, like how, you know, C.S. or uh, J.R. Tolkien speaks of it, this idea of catastrophe, this wonderful turning of the world towards the good. And yet, as that's the hope, that's the expectation that they have, that's the expectation that we often feel, even if we can't put our finger on it. We see in John's words that while this should be good news for God's people, while this you know, has been their hope for many, many years, we actually see, at least in the beginning, there is some bad news that goes along with this good news. You know, John is coming on the scene and he's really declaring very clearly, we see in the other gospels, judgment is coming. God is coming, but that coming of the Lord means that he's going to come you know, in a very terrifying, in a very uh, real manner against his enemies. And that's really what John was doing out in the wilderness as he's baptizing people. He's telling them, get ready for this uh, event. Or to say it another way, you know, the, the problem isn't just all the stuff out there that you're waiting to be resolved on your behalf. It's not just the, the badness out there. But he's saying there's an issue in each and every one of us that needs to be dealt with. This is even, again, what we see at the end of Malachi, this promise that there was this purging, this cleansing that was going to have to take place uh, even in the midst of God's people, which, again, this is what John's baptism is signifying this idea of this ritual washing of God's people, which you know, for many people would have probably been very offensive to hear that you had, as a uh, you know, circumcised Jewish person had to be washed in the river was perhaps very uh, you know, uh, offensive to them. Uh, typically at this time, it was only proselytes who were washed who would go through this process of baptism. This idea that it was outsiders who needed to, needed to be cleansed so that they might come into the community of God's people. And yet John's saying, no, every single one of you needs to go outside of Israel, be washed in the Jordan River, and then enter cleansed into the promised land. And yet here, John is, again, he's affirming something that is very central, very true, that you know, we certainly know that we all need saving. We all long for salvation, for redemption. And yet John is telling us, for that to happen, for that very thing that we're hoping for to happen, it's not just the things out there that need to be taken care of, but we need to prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord. If God is to come and that is to be a good thing for his people, they need cleansing. They need to be made ready. They need to be made fit for his coming. As John declares that this you know, superior one is coming, the, the, the Lord himself, this Messiah, this, this prophet, he's saying you need to get ready for his coming. There's a dilemma here he's presenting or, or a problem that needs to be resolved for God's people. And yet as John presents this problem and this, this thing that needs to take place for his people to be ready, we also, thankfully, as John continues his witness, we see another promise that is being fulfilled, that Jesus is not just coming as the Lord in judgment on his enemies, but we also are told, John tells us, that Jesus is coming as the promised sacrifice for his people. 
not just the Lord, but the Lord who comes as sacrifice, as this lamb, John will declare. As we hear this phrase, you know, the next day rolls around, John's continuing to preach, he's continuing to baptize people, and then he says something which to us doesn't really strike our ears, I think, as strange or out of the ordinary, but in verse 29, you know, he says, behold, as he sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I said, you know, it's not strange for us, but you can imagine being a Jewish believer at this time, someone waiting for the Messiah to come, and you heard John say this, you would have been very, very thrown off guard. You would have been perhaps even perplexed that John would say something like this. You know, as you're thinking about the, the prophetic writings, as you're thinking about even, again, Isaiah 40, this great hope that the people had that this one would come, he would prepare the way of the Lord. You know, that text goes on. It goes on to say, as the Lord comes in power, we see in Isaiah 40, verse 9, this one, this speaker says, Behold your God. Look, your God has arrived. Look at him. And yet John seems to you know, add a little bit to change that verse up a little bit. He doesn't say, behold your God, but he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yet we want to consider where John might have gotten such language. You know, this in one way would have thrown the people, would have confused them, and yet John isn't just making up anything here. He is very much in line with the message of the Old Testament. Again, he's declaring this as a promise that is being fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is coming to be that lamb that was promised in the Old Testament. And here we can see, of course, throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, this theme of, of sacrifice, this theme of, of a lamb who would be promised. I mean, you can go back all the way to Genesis 3, and you see this as Adam and Eve, they sin, they transgress God's law, they're you know, expelled from the promised land, and yet even as that happens, what does God do? He sacrifices, he kills animals, he puts skins on them. This first act of you know, killing an animal, covering them with that blood. And then even as we read this evening in Genesis 22, that very, very famous story of Abraham being called to sacrifice his own son, and yet God at the very end, you know, he stops him and he promises, he makes a promise, not just for Abraham, but this promise that he will provide a lamb. This it was answered in the immediate context by a ram who's caught by his, his horns, but of course pointing to something greater, another lamb that would come in history. We see you know, Exodus 12, the Passover sacrifice, the sparing of God's people as they sacrifice animals on their behalf, and of course all this you know, most clearly comes to a head and a passage like Isaiah 53, this idea of this one who would come, this promised one, this Messiah figure, but very clearly told in Isaiah 53, as he comes, he comes as a suffering servant, and the figure that is used is a lamb, you know, this one who would come as a lamb without blemish, this one who would you know, be silent before his shearers, this one who would be slaughtered on behalf of his people. So it shouldn't have been too out of hand, but, but the context, you know, the people would have been thrown that the Lord himself is also somehow this lamb figure. Yet even more than just the, the biblical witness, even more than just what they would have heard in the scriptures, the daily uh, you know, life of the people would have pointed them to this reality. As day after day, they would have seen you know, bloodshed. They would have gone to the temple on a regular 
uh, you know, basis to make these very sacrifices that were commanded in the Old Testament, this very, very visceral reminder for them that sacrifice was needed, that bloodshed was needed in order to forgive sins. And it's with that whole you know, context that we don't have, but these people would have heard lamb and they would have thought sacrifice, they would have thought sin. And here John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we hear that phrase, again, that phrase that might be very, very familiar to us, I want to just meditate on it for a moment and, and kind of think about the, the strangeness, the surprise of that, that phrase, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First, in the, the description of who he is, right, the, the Lamb of God, it's a unique phrase, it's a new phrase here. Uh, in, the, in the scriptures, but it's this idea, you know, uh, typically the people themselves would have provided a lamb, provided something to sacrifice, and yet John here says it's the lamb of God. God himself is the one offering up this sacrificial animal. This, of course, means that it is a perfect sacrifice, that, you know, they were called to present spotless, perfect animals, those who had no spots on them or blemishes, and yet we see now God is offering up something that must be far superior than what they could offer. We see that it's this lamb that doesn't cover sins. He doesn't you know, hide sins, but we see he takes away sins. If you look throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was this, you know, this idea that the, sin, or the, the sacrifice would cover sin, this idea of covering, of, of, of you know, making a, a appeasement for sin so that we could continue to be in God's presence. But... Here we see, no, this sacrifice is going to come. It's going to eradicate sin. It's going to lift up and remove sin. This idea that it's a final sacrifice, not like the ones you make every day that cover your sin, but it's a once and for all sacrifice, a unique sacrifice. And then perhaps even most or more surprising, the extent of this sacrifice we see. You know, behold the Lamb of God that doesn't just take away the sins of Israel, doesn't just take away the sins of my people, but the sins of the world. This is an extensive sac- sacrifice. It covers the sins of all people. As we hear John proclaim this, I want us to hear this as what it is. It is proclamation. John's not just conveying information here. He is doing the job of preaching. He's called to be a preacher, and here he is very clearly preaching the gospel to God's people. You know, He doesn't just say, hey, did you know that this is happening? He's points to Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is, in many ways, what I strive to do. That's the call of preachers to say that. Behold, look to Jesus, look to the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. And I want us to hear that because that is, of course, good news, not just in this time period to these people at the Jordan River. This is God's message of salvation to each and every one of us. That as we, of course, are burdened by our sin, we're burdened by the guilt of our sin, by the effects that it has had on us and those around us as our sin, not just the effects of the world around us, but our sin also continues to weigh heavy upon us as we are often riddled with regret for our past sins and mistakes. You know, even maybe asking the question in our lives from time to time, will God, forgive me again. You know, can God do something finally about my sin? Will he once and for all take care of it? We can ask those questions. We can struggle with that. And here John 
presents to us. He says, behold the Lamb of God, this perfect, sufficient, once and for all sacrifice. John says, God has provided for you that Lamb. He's really putting flesh on what John the author said in his prologue just a few verses before. Remember he said, for those who have believed in Christ, those who have been called his children, he says, we have received grace upon grace. We've been showered with God's grace. And of course that you know, it's made you know, clear that is shown forth not just as this stream of this magical substance called grace, but as Jesus' sacrifice, as he comes to die for sinners, pouring himself out for us and covering us with his righteousness. So here John again, John the Baptist is declaring the sufficient, perfect sacrifice has come. Your sins, as you look to Christ by faith, your sins are taken away even as the psalm psalm 103 tells us as far as the east is from the west this wonderful promise of the old testament now is has occurred jesus in his death he removes our sin he takes it away as far as the east is from the west john is testifying to the reality of this and yet even as he declares this this wonderful statement this you know new uh, phrase that we are given in his uh, in this gospel this new you know, idea of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we do want to ask, how in the world could John the Baptist have come to this conclusion? What was the, you know, the impetus for him making such a wonderful declaration? And lastly this evening, what I want us to see how John came to this is, well, lastly, John, he now goes on to testify that Jesus is not just the promised sacrifice, but also the promised son. Here John's testimony continues. He goes on in verse 32, and John bore witness. Again, think, you know, courtroom language. John is, you know, solemnly swearing here. He says, I saw the spirits descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And then he goes on in verse 34, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You know, cross my heart and hope to die. This is the Son of God. I can say it as a fact. I make no qualms about it. Yet it's interesting here. He's you know, kind of uh, uh, offhandedly mentioning something that he thinks that his reader would be taking or his listener would be taking uh, for granted here. You know, he says, I saw and bore witness. And then he talks about this dove descending on Jesus. And he talks about, you know, this voice, this one saying, when you see this dove descending, this is you know, the, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And really what he's drawing on is what Christians who would have been reading this gospel would have known is this wonderful event of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. You know, John's t- saying all this in the past tense because this has already taken place, and now he's relating it either to the religious leaders or perhaps even to you know, the, the author himself, but he says there's this dove who descended, there's this pronouncement that you see in other accounts, this declaration that leads John himself to declare this is the Son of God. The assumption being God, the Father himself, declared it. And so John the Baptist can now testify. Yes, I heard God's voice saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And yet in the midst of this, John also says something quite strange to uh, those who know the story of the Gospels. He says, I didn't know him in verse 31. You see, he says in, in verse 31, I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing and again, he repeats in 33, I myself did not know him. Which, if you know history, you know he knew 
Jesus. Jesus was, in fact, his cousin. They would have perhaps grown up together. They would have at least known the story of one another through their mothers. You know, Jesus would have heard about Elizabeth's miraculous birth. John would have known about this miracle baby Jesus who came just shortly after him. Yet it seems that there's, at least in part through their you know, growing up together, through their childhood, that there's something, there's some aspect that John doesn't quite fully grasp. There's something about Jesus and his role that, Jesus, that John isn't clear about. And yet apparently something happens to strike you know, his imagination, to, you know, to, to recall something in his thinking that makes everything clear for him, that something clicked and Apparently what did it was God the Father saying to his, uh, about his son, you know, this is my beloved son. In other words, as God declares Jesus his son, John now can go on to say, oh, I get it now. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It might seem like a stretch, but perhaps John even had a story like Genesis 22 in his mind as he's ruminating on these things, as he's thinking about sin and judgment, and he's thinking about his own baptism, thinking about why Jesus would come into the world, why God would take on flesh. Yet he recalls this theme throughout Scripture that God would send a sacrifice and that God would send his own son. You know, God himself providing, I will provide a lamb. Or thinking about a passage like the, the Passover, this sacrifice for sin, which... In doing so, you know, spares the firstborn sons of Israel. Jesus is pronounced God's son, and this again, it compels John the Baptist to declare, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Perhaps even as he considers Jesus' baptism, you know, he'll tell us other, or we'll be told other places in the Gospels that, you know, John will even refuse. He's, he's not sure he wants to baptize Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. Jesus is you know, higher than me. He's better than me. He's sinless. He's spotless. Why do you need to be baptized by me? And yet even in baptism, he might even be recognizing that Jesus, as we'll see later on in John's gospel, Jesus is going to be baptized. Jesus is going to be killed for sins. He's going to take the baptism that we deserve. You know, judgment waters being poured over him so that we might receive God's blessing. In other words, John's not creating new theology. He's seeing the themes of God's word, the, the promises of the Old Testament, and he's weaving them together. The Son of God would come and he would be the lamb, the sacrifice that God would provide. As we conclude this evening, as we hear these wonderful testimonies that John the Baptist make, we see we are given clarity as to who Christ is for us. That Christ is this one. He was the one who was promised, not you know, the prophet, not the Messiah, not the Lord, but altogether one, this one who would come, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the Son of God, all these combined into this one person. And yet John also reveals to us how these things would be accomplished, the, the way in which God would be all these things for us. That he, as he comes you know, as the Lord, as the Lord of history taking on human flesh. You see, he comes in his first appearance not to judge, not to come in wrath and judgment against his people and their sin, but he comes to be judged, to be you know, punished in our place. 
not to conquer his enemies, but to die for them, to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus sees this high and exalted one, this one who he says, you know, I can't even take off his sandals, we see this Lord of all things humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see the very Son of God, the one who is from, you know, before time, this one who has all power and authority. We see him lay down his life for the sins of his people. So brothers and sisters, just as John the Baptist says, behold, once more, behold the Lamb of God. Look to Christ today. See this one, this man who is, you know, the Son of God, this one who is superior to John the Baptist, this one who is our Messiah, who is our Lord, but see him as he is exalted as the, the Lamb of God on, on the cross, shedding his blood for our sin. We need to see this so that when Jesus does return, when he comes again in power, not as the Lamb, but as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, you know, we can know that that's not going to be bad news for us as his people. In fact, that is a source of our rejoicing. It's not something that we are to dread, but it is something that we can long for because Christ has accomplished what is necessary for our salvation. Or if you want to hear it in the words of John, the author of our gospel, you know, as we look to Christ, we can hear anew this declaration that he makes in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the precious gift that is your Son. We thank you that, Lord, from before the foundations of this earth, Lord, you willed to send him, God, that throughout history you were accomplished all that was necessary so that he might come at the right time. And we thank you, Lord, that he has borne our sins and that one day he will come to set us free. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.